What's in a name? You Shakespeare fans finish the line? That, come on Becky, that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, right? The argument there is uh, Romeo and Juliet meeting and falling in love in that uh, tale there of these two star-crossed lovers are doomed from the start as two members of warring families. And in that line, Juliet is telling Romeo that a name is just an artificial and meaningless uh, convention and that she loves the, the person who's called Montague, not the Montague name or the Montague family, right? And Romeo, out of his passion for Juliet, he rejects his family name and vows, and Juliet asks to deny his father and instead be baptized as Juliet's lover. And that one uh, short line really uh, uh, captured the struggle and strategy of the play, one of Shakespeare's most famous quotes. But this morning, I actually want to show you the opposite truth. That uh, what's in a name does matter. And I don't mean your first and last name necessarily in those letters there that are involved in your name. I want you to, sh- I want you to understand from Micah that uh, what's in a name, who you are, your life, does matter. Uh, when people hear your name, uh, it's not most important what they think. It's what God thinks. I want to ask yourself. I want you to ask yourself, what's in my name? What's in my name? Last week we closed our series in Romans fourteen to fifteen by seeing in Romans fifteen verse seven through thirteen, Paul draws it to a close and he shows this vast, beautiful expanse of the drama of redemption. We saw Israel's priority that the gospel is to the Jew first. Then we saw the international provision that all of us here, I'm assuming just Gentiles here, uh, uh, enjoy that God has expanded the, the, the gospel here to, to us as Gentiles. He said that Jesus Christ is a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. And, and, and then he says, and that the Gentiles might glorify God in his mercy. And he quotes four Old Testament verses. And he shows in this international provision that we have a king who has conquered. From 2 Samuel 22. A king who is connected. A king who is conquered, who, is, who, has, uh, who rules over the Gentiles. And the Jews can now sing the praises of God in the midst of the Gentiles. Then a king who is connected because the next verse talks about Jews and Gentiles singing God's praise together. A king who is connected. Then a king who is cherished. And a king... Who was crowned? Gentiles can rejoice in a Jewish Messiah. Resulted in an inspired purpose that uh, we can be filled by the God of hope and our lives can gush out and glory to God in praise and peace that He brings uh, uh, in the hope that He has delivered to His church through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now I want you to jump seven to eight hundred years back. From that text. Before the fullness of that plan in Romans 15, God had a man named Micah reveal a part of that plan to Israel. 
Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah the Morishite in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, Hear, all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. We're introduced to this speaker, the mouthpiece of God, and his name is is Micah. His name is Micah. A a form of the word is Micaiah. He was a prophet uh, earlier in in, uh, in the the ministries of uh, Ahab and Omri. The same name, different person, Micah. And his name means, who is like Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh? And I would assume that his parents had a very intensive purpose for naming him, who is like Yahweh? He had a name that displayed the God who is majestic. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like our God? Who is like your God? And that is a rhetorical question because the answer is emphatically, no one, no one else. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, and I'd like you to see Isaiah's picture here of a big God, a majestic God in Isaiah chapter 40. And maybe you can understand a little bit of why Micah's parents would have named him Micah, who is like Yahweh? Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah is comparing the God of Israel to the gods that they had a tendency to replace the God of Israel with. And Isaiah chapter 40 verse 9 says, O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, saying, you have good news, let's hear it. Get a deep breath, let it out. What is the good news? Lift it up. Be not afraid. Here's the good news. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand, and His arm rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. You see His gentleness in verse 11. You see His majesty again in verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, and meted or measured out heaven with a span, takes His fingers between thumb and, and pinky, and that's the entire universe. And comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountain and scales and the hills and the balance. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor hath taught him with whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding. Behold the nations the five billion or so that are a part of our world today are as a drop of a bucket. And are counted as the, the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taken the isles of the islands is a very little thing. Later down in verse 25, he says, To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? You're creating these, these graven images, these idols with your own hands, and you're saying that they are equivalent to me? 
Lift up your eyes on high, verse 26, and behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names by the greatness of His might, for he, for that He is strong in power, not one faileth. Micah, who is like Yahweh? He had a big God. A God who is majestic. I wonder, do you have a God, a real personal God, the God of the Bible, who is majestic and He reigns? He has finished the task. He has been resurrected. He walked out of the tomb unassisted except by the Spirit and the power of God. And He has ascended on high and He sits at the right hand of His Father waiting till His enemies are made His footstool. Does your life blaze to make much of Him? Stories told of the moon who got a little fat-headed and tried to believe that all the light that was coming out of the moon was from Him. And had forgotten that the moon was simply a reflection of the great light, the sun. If you have a God who is majestic, then you're not always trying to prove yourself to others. You are not a person who tries to prove yourself to others. You are a person who tries to point others to Him. What better New Testament example of this is than John the Baptist, who sees the Lamb of God, and he says, He must increase, and I must decrease. Now, can God increase? He can't increase. He doesn't get any bigger than he already is, right? But John wanted us to look through the telescope and see the grandeur of God and Christ. John had to decrease. The passion for the glory of God had to increase. You know, if you have a majestic God... puts worries and anxieties in perspective. I want to ask you this question. We can really be prone to worry and have anxiety over a lot of different things, can't we? Do your worries and your anxieties tell the world that your God isn't big enough? Because that's what they're doing. Is your God big? Why does Peter tell us to cast our cares upon Him? For He careth for you. Micah had a God who there was none like. He had a majestic God. Secondly, I want you to see that He had a imminent God. That's simply a $50 word that means near, close, imminent He's the God of space and time. Notice chapter 1 verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah the Morishite in the days of Jotham 
Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He's a God of space and time. He has delivered his word to Micah, who lives in the little town of Morasheth. Morasheth. How many of you know a lot about Morasheth? I don't know that you hear about it again in Scripture, but it was in a valley in the western lowlands of Judah. Maybe you can see it there on the, on the, on the map there to the left of the, of the, uh, of the Sea of, uh, um, of, of Galilee, uh, the de- in the Dead Sea there. Um, it was about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It's probably also mentioned in chapter 1, verse 14. It was rural. It was poor. It was little. And Micah, who had this big, majestic God, he knew how big he was. He knew how transcendent he was above all of his creation. He knew that his God was near. His God was speaking to Micah of the little village of Morsheh. In time and space, in the days of these particular kings that ruled. He was the God of the valleys, of little Morsheth, and he was the God of the kings. He was the God who was behind the reign of the kings. He was the God of little old me, Micah. He was the God of the hills and cities of Jerusalem and Samaria. He was the God of the peasants. He was the God of the kings. And because Micah's God was near, Micah was not afraid. In fact, read what he says in Micah chapter 3 verse 8. He says, but truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Because he had a majestic God, but because he had a God who was near, he could be bold. And I want to ask ourselves this question this morning. What about your God? Is he so big that he is also near? Charlie, this morning before we prayed, talked about our right relationship with God. And I want to ask you, do you have, do you have a personal walk with God? I appreciate that you're all here this morning. But do you have a personal walk with God? You, a walk with God. Do you love His Word and ponder it and talk with Him and enjoy Him and love Him? He's the God of your right now. He's the God of your yesterday. He's the God of your tomorrow. He's the God of time and space. He's the God of your family life. He's the God of your work life. He's the God of your here on Sunday with us. We can have a tendency to act more like a deist who says, yeah, there's a God, but he's well on the clock and he's just kind of left things go and he's distant. You know how you can tell if you have a God who is imminent in your life? By your walk. What does your walk say? We can say we have a God who is near, but you know, we can live like practical atheists in a lot of ways. When was the last time you consulted Him? When was the last time your soul was nourished from this book? When was the last time you communed with God in prayer? When was the last time you saw Him work for something that you were passionately praying for? Are you dry? Are you cold? Are you hard and distant? Then turn to our God because there is none like Yahweh. 
When was the last time you saw Him change something in your life, in you, to look like Jesus that you knew was not in your power? And you were in awe at His grace. It's the life of Christ flowing through you. That's what a God who is imminent is doing. That's the real test. Do you walk with God later at the end of His book? Probably the most famous verse, Micah 6, uh, 6, 8. Says, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Does your walk translate into serving others? Is he who and what you are honestly living your life for as you evaluate your life? Or is it for the next paycheck? Or is it for the next thrill? Or is it for the next comfort? He's a God who is imminent. He is near in His majesty. Micah wrote this book somewhere in the 700s, 700 years or so before Christ. It was a time that is stretched here in verse 1 to say that it was during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He was alive during the reign of three kings. Probably after some time that Jotham reigned. Obviously during the whole reign of Ahaz and sometime during the reign of Hezekiah. Here's where he fits whereabouts in history there. The beginning of the timeline. The things he prophesies about Samaria being taken captive by the Assyrians happened in 722 B.C. He saw a lot happen. He saw the judgment of God come down on Israel. But he had a God that he walked with. He knew that no matter what happened to him and God's judgment upon Israel, he was right with God. He was ruled by the spirit of power. That's where his power came from in Micah 3.8. He could declare what he knew he had to declare and wasn't fearful of what others spoke. Because he had a God who was imminent. But he also had a God who was constant. Constant. Nathan said the only thing that is constant is change. And that's true in this world. But it's not true of God, is it? He never changes. And I mentioned that a contemporary of, of Micah's was Isaiah. And Isaiah was ministering to many of the royal blood and the royal crowd. Isaiah himself had royal blood. He had a ministry to the kings and the upper class. But God didn't think Isaiah was enough. Not because there was something lacking in Isaiah. But our God is faithful. He's constant. He needs faithful people of all kinds of minister. He needs Micah. And so he takes a Micah who lives in a poor village. And Micah seems to be an advocate of the poor and the injustice done to them by uh, the, 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 the wealthy. And he uses him as a proclaimer of truth. Little Micah. He's faithful. He can use little people. He can use so-called big people, right? In fact, Micah is respected and used by God because in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 26, Jeremiah quotes from Micah. He actually quotes Micah 3.12. 
to King Hezekiah, who apparently knew and respected Micah, though he was from a small village. Because God, the God that Micah worshipped was a God who was faithful to reach to all peoples. And Jeremiah 26, verse 18 and 19 says, then wrote, uh, Micah the Morseth prophet prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the forest is high as the high places of a forest. Now that's not an easy thing to say to a king who is concerned about the flourishing of his nation. And so in verse 19, Jeremiah says, Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him at all to death? Answers no. They respected Micah. Did he not fear the Lord and besought the Lord, and the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them? Thus might we procure great evil against our souls. God had spoken. Micah wasn't anything special. But Micah had a God who was constant, who was faithful. And God is constant. He shows no favorites. In the book of Micah, he speaks to both the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria, and he speaks to the southern kingdom of Israel, Jerusalem. No favorites. He condemns their lives without him. He tells them that destruction will happen through the northern kingdom, through Assyria. And the horrors that you hear about uh, ISIS were things that Assyria was doing. And he says, this is what's going to happen to you because you've turned from Yahweh. And he speaks to Judah. And he turns over here and looks at them and he says, and the things that are going to happen to them, they're going to happen to you. By a nation that's not even a power yet, Babylon. Because you're doing the same things your neighbors to the north and your people to the north are doing. He warns the kings. He warns the villages. He warns Hezekiah. He warns Ahaz. He warns Jotham. And apparently it says all Judah he warned. Turn to Yahweh. He is constant. He gives a universal message of turning from sin to God. Because Yahweh is faithful. That's why he can do this. He's constant. So Micah can be constant and faithful and not waver with the cultural opinions of the day. What about us? What about me? What about you? Is our first pull to be people pleasers? Do we see God as a God who is just, who deals with all righteously? Or do we see exceptions? Do we grasp the just nature of God and we warn people to flee to Christ for the wrath to come? Or is there an air of apathy or coldness to the constancy of God? He's unchanging. His word is still true. His character is true to himself. Does my life, does your life show, does your name show that you have a God who is constant or a God who blows with the wind with the culture's values? Are there certain people in your life that when they come your way, you portray God and talk about them in a different way than you do to others? Or can you speak the truth in love because your identity is rooted in a God who is constant?
He doesn't change. But we have a God who announces. A God who announces. You know, the text says here, the word of Yahweh came. The word of the Lord. You'll notice that Lord there is in all capital letters there. The word of the Lord that came to Micah later on, which he saw in a vision, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. The word of Yahweh came. On this, uh, this, this slide here is a, is a collection of, of all the words in Micah that are used uh, most frequently. And the more frequently a word is used, the larger it appears in the font there. The, the words of God in Micah. And there are, are three messages that Micah shows. In chapter 1 and verse 2. They all begin with this idea of hearing God. Hear, all ye people. Hearken, O earth, and all that therein is. And let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. That's the first message. The second one go, begins, and that first one goes all the way through chapter 1 and 2. The second one goes to chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Here I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know judgment? And the third one... Starts up in chapter 6, verse 1, and goes to the end of the book through 7. Hear ye now what the Lord saith, Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. These messages here give us a theme that God will punish corruption in His people, but He promises restoration. He's God who's long-suffering. He promises restoration. He will judge sin, but He puts Himself out there on behalf of His people. They repent, believe. You could basically break Micah down in these four points here. I want you to see here that Micah is passionate. He is passionate about the Word of God. It is on his heart. It is on his lips. Yahweh had delivered him the message because Yahweh was passionate about the message. It was on his heart and his lips. And our God is a speaking God. He's a God who announces even from beginning in Genesis 1. He's a God who speaks and life comes. He's a God who calls light out of darkness. He's a God who calls life out of dirt. He's a speaking God. And He has always been a speaking God. Because He has always communicated with the Father, Son, and Spirit Himself. And He has revealed Himself. If He is a God who has revealed Himself, we need to know His book. We need to know His Word. I spoke already about your relationship to His Word, but I ask you again, do you love His Word? Well, I don't know. How do you know if you love His Word? Jesus says, if you love Me, you keep it. You keep His commandments. Which means two things. If you're going to keep His commandments, first of all, you've got to know what His Word says. And secondly, as you understand it, you obey it. Jesus talks in John about giving light. And the people who take the light they receive and act on it, He gives more light. We can be passionate and excited about so many things, but are we passionate about His Word? Do we really treat it like literal food and water? And what if we did? Where if we didn't have it, we would die. 
See, we worship a God who is majestic, a God who is imminent and near, a God who is constant, but a God who is announced. He's revealed Himself, His Word. We worship the God who announces. And finally, remember wondering what the last H was. We worship the God who hears, who hears, who hears. I showed you the three times that God has announced His Word, but He calls on, on, on Israel to hear. But He's also a God who hears Himself. If you go to the very last chapter, there's always a remnant who are faithful in Israel. And chapter 7 is a breath of life into the remnant. Stay faithful. Continue on. In chapter 7, verse 7, Micah says, Therefore I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Three times Micah has announced to the people, Hear God! Now Micah says, My God will hear me. Hear me what? Pours out his heart to God. When the message has been delivered, and the hearts have turned to him in brokenness and honest, he hears. Verse 18, he closes with a wordplay on his name. His name, as I said, means who is like Yahweh. And here in Micah 7.18, he says, who is like Elohim? Who is a God like unto thee? What makes him set apart here? He's majestic, he is imminent, he is constant, he is announcing, but he's a God who hears. He's a God that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. Who is like that God? He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and that will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That will perform the truth to Jacob. He'll finish the work. He'll fulfill the promise and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Who is like you, Yahweh? And we know those truths can only be true as they look ahead to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the only means, the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only possible way that God could pardon iniquity. So sacrifice looked ahead to Jesus. Who could pass by the transgressions. Who could delight in mercy because He poured out His anger and wrath on His Son Who could be a God here who offers pardon? And you have been called to announce the kingly pardon that is available. Pardon from sin and transgression. Pardon to be treated as though you have never sinned. And get your mind around that. Not treated to just 
say, okay, you can go free, but you still got this bad record. That's No, Jesus took that record and he gave his life. He gave his righteousness. He cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And verse 20, Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers in the days of old. The promise that out of the nation of Israel there will be one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We look back at what we saw in Romans 15 last week and say, You performed it. You will continue to perform it. There is a remnant. There's a remnant of Israel. There's an obligation to Israel for the gospel. There's a plan for Israel in the future. Right now our plan is to get the gospel. Because it is in terms of pardon. Repent and turn. Believe and return. He is a God who hears Who is like you, Yahweh? You, Yahweh, are majestic. You are imminent. You are constant. You are announcing your word that gives life. You hear us when we repent. Folks, this is the God that Micah loved and served. And this is the God He is calling us to fall down on our faces and worship and live for. What's in your name? How do you display that there is none like Yahweh? In your pain? In your joys? In your trials? In the little things of life? The big things of life? How do you display there is none like Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh?